Welcome to the Radio Curious Archives from the summer of 2002. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. In this program, we visit with David Ebershoff, author of Pasadena, a book about storytelling. It's the story of Linda Stamp, a young girl raised on a rural coastal area near San Diego, California, beginning when she was born in 1903. Linda learned the different ways of the sea as she grew up and later married into a wealthy Pasadena family. Pasadena is a book about choices, some of which we think through and some of which determine our faith, even when we were unaware of the magnitude of the moment. With the novelist's freedom, David Evershoff uses his sense of story, where it begins and where it ends. As the middle part of the story is built, so are the characters' lives, just opposing the times and places in each event. One reviewer has said, in many ways, California itself is the novel's main character. We get to see what the land must have been like when it was a wild, teeming frontier on its way to being transformed by fishermen, farmers, land developers, and tourists. David Evershoff is currently an executive editor at Random House Books and lives in New York City. When he and I visited by phone in July of 2002, I asked him to describe the kinds of things in his life that prompted him to write his second novel, Pasadena. A couple things. I grew up in Pasadena in Southern California. Um, I was born there. My family isn't from there. They moved to California just before I was born in 1969. And as I was growing up, um, I began to find a few places in Southern California, like the Huntington Library and uh, the strip of coast between um, San Diego and Los Angeles, um, down around San Clemente, that is undeveloped. And I found these places that gave me a little bit of a window into California's past that I could go to when I was in my teens and and then when I went to college and came back to California that I could go to and look at and begin to imagine a different place than the Southern California that I that I lived in than the Southern California that we all think of now which conjures notions of smog and sprawl and and massive mega city when you say imagine a different place, yeah. how does your imagination work? In some ways, it's rather literal. I, I remember um, several times going to uh, the Huntington Library, which is in San Marino. This is um, a, a mansion and a botanical garden and a library that was once um, owned by Henry Huntington, who was a robber baron, um, one of the major uh, uh, railroad men of the 19th century, and that's how he earned his money. And he built a ranch um, in Southern California for his house, for his family, and for his art collection and his rare books. And he built a, a very large house, and he um, preserved it and left it to the public. And so it's on a very large piece of land in an area that's now suburban. And you can go into this house, and you can go up these grand stairs, and you can go to a window and look out over a valley that is 
is still on the property of this ranch and looked down over um, lawns and what was once orange groves and out into an arroyo. And you can begin to, it's, it's, you're looking out a window, but in fact it's a window into another world. And I remember standing there and thinking, oh, this was once what the view was like. And I remember once reading, this is about, oh, I don't know, about 30 miles inland from the coast. And it's, it went from people who live there now, there's no association of the ocean with this part of California. But I w- remember once reading that it used to be you could see the ocean from points in Pasadena because the sky was clear. Now it just never happens. Um, in fact, in, in the next town over, there's a, um, a road called Ocean View Boulevard. Or, um, and now you can't imagine why it would be called Ocean View Boulevard. Um, but once, once there was a view... That um, house that you describe yeah. kind of resembles the house on the cover of your book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there is such a house in my book. There is such a... There's an, the, at the heart of the story is, is um, a family from Pasadena. Uh, they are orange ranchers. They're wealthy, but they're in decline. The protagonist is not from this family, She's from um, the rural coastland between Los Angeles and San Diego. She's, she's uh, from the daughter of an onion farmer. But she eventually marries into this family, and um, she observes the family It's from her point of view, and it's not what it seemed. Well, how does a man, 34 years old, you, create the point of view of a woman... Uh, the protagonist who grows up as a small child along the ocean matures and marries into this uh, family um, in a rather um, I guess a, a somewhat straightforward but but dutiful manner of thinking about my character. Her name is Linda. She was born in nineteen o three uh, Her father is a German immigrant, her mother's a Mexican immigrant, thinking through what her life would be like, wondering, asking myself questions of what she would want um, for herself. She was very smart. She was very beautiful. So how do you get the answers to those questions of what she would want? I just think through what people do, how people behave, and and it becomes somewhat natural. And by writing the story, there becomes an inevitability. As a young girl, she's very um, tempestuous. She's She's a lobster girl. She keeps lobster pots on the bottom of the ocean. She's very forceful. She's more willful than her brother. And I think, well, if she acts this way, then what type of young woman would she grow into? What type of older woman would she grow into? It's a matter of observing people throughout your life, I guess, as a writer, and then thinking through what would be the most natural action for this person. What type of story would she create for herself? Um, And as a writer... That's sort of the the psychological work. There's also a lot more um, detailed work that goes on. I to to recreate this world. I went through a lot of um, material to imagine what it was once like. I looked at a lot of photographs. I read some memoirs and diaries of people who came to California in the late 19th century. I read some history books about it and began to piece piece together the the daily life of people in Southern California. I read an amazing statistic, or it amazes me, which is that in the 1930s, Los Angeles County was the largest agricultural county in America. And that tells you how rapidly 
the world of Southern California changed. And what I wanted to write in, in Pasadena was a book about people who were changing. My character, Linda, changing from um, a girl from a very little farm on the rural coast uh, who fishes every day and whose father um, grows onions and changes into a woman who moves to a, a wealthy city and marries into a wealthy family and then becomes a different person. She's changing against the backdrop of a changing landscape. Um, and that's what I was trying to explore is just this, this how do people change when the world around them is changing? How do people change psychologically? How does their love change? She, how does that happen? Through the choices they make, really. I mean, this is, it is a book about choices. And in some cases, Linda, Linda, Linda has to choose um, over whom she loves. Uh, there are a couple men in love with her. And she's not sure what she wants to do at a at a critical point in her life. There's a there's a young man named Bruder, who um, her who has returned. Her father goes to fight in World War One, and when he returns, um, her father brings home a young man named Bruder, and he has a past that Linda doesn't know about. Um, and she falls in love with him, and he falls in love with her. But it's it's a complicated relationship, and she can't quite understand what she should do. And at the same time, she meets a young man named Captain Willis Poor, who's the son of this wealthy orange ranching family from Pasadena. And she's dazzled by him and by his life and by his ranch. And she has to make a choice of what to do. And she thinks she makes the right choice. And of course, she has to live with that. And it's about, it's about thinking through what happens when we, when we make these choices and how we determine our fate and how sometimes at the moment that we're determining our fate, we don't know we're determining our fate. Can you tell us a little more about that? You come to a fork in the road and you don't know it's a fork in the road? I think that we've all experienced that, where that you don't realize that the moment that you're living through is going to affect everything that comes after because you can't, you don't have the perspective. But as a novelist, because I'm both looking forward and back, I'm thinking forward to the end of the book and I'm looking back to what I've written. I realize where this, what that this is a fork in the road, and that everything, everything that I have written informs what everything I'm going to write. And so, since I'm writing the fate of my characters, I I, I try to remain aware of that. So Linda is at this fork in the road, and she is in love with two people, and she doesn't understand fully the nature of each man's love. Um, there, there are, each man has a history with her family that she is unaware of, that she won't learn about um, until later in her life. And each man loves her, but he has his own reasons, and she doesn't know about this, and yet she has to make a decision um, and then live with it and live with any regret that comes with it as well. Applying um, what we've said, that you may not know about a decision until after you've made it, how much of that uh, do you find in writing a novel? A lot. <laughs> a lot from the very beginning. I, I'm the type of writer, I have a sense of the story I want to write. I have a sense of what I'm writing to and the ending that I'm writing to. But there are so many uh, decisions, big and small, that affect everything else. Um, just from the first sentence of 
describing whatever, however you can, however you open the book, whatever information you offer the reader first. Um, this book, in fact, opens with a prologue, um, very short, couple pages um, about a landslide. In this 2002 archive edition of Radio Curious, we visit with David Ebershoff, author of Pasadena. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. David, is there a portion of the book that you could read for us? I think I'll read the prologue that I was just talking about, um, which opens the book. And uh, it's called Runoff. And I will start just as the reader will start. Okay. The dam broke, and Linda looked up and saw the bluff collapse, a waterfall of mud. She held her breath as the sludge burst from the swamp, as it funneled down the sandstone cliff, down the scaffold of steps, swallowing her. The mud flow slapped her face and plugged her ears, sealed her eyes, stopped her mouth, and shoved cold between her thighs. She was a girl of 17, now dragged under by the grimy hand of a broken, single-arched dam. The dirty water was in her throat, the air stolen from her lungs. A torrent of silt plucked her down to the cove, where her outrigger canoe rested against a rock padded with rubbery laver. Linda tumbled as if wrestled by a wave, no air or light, up turned down, the mud's tide carrying her. It was rocky, like the oozy, water-bound macadam poured to pave the roads to and from Baden-Baden by the sea. The gravel and the dust water devouring the old wagon trails and the weedy Surrey routes and the cor- former cow paths. The earth flow rolled Linda. Stones attacked her, shredding her work dress, bruising her pale flesh. Linda Stamp, a fisher girl with eight lobster pots at the bottom of the Pacific, was transported in a coffin of mud. The January rains had swollen Sigmund Swamp, home of the winter runoff and the red-eyed vinegar fly. The downpour had prodded the dam, while Linda toiled below, nailing the planks into the staircase. She was not alone. Bruder was a few steps above, and her mother, Valencia, was next to her, handing her wagon box nails and brushing the hair from her eyes. There had been five days of rain, sometimes an inch an hour, flocks of clouds soaring off the Pacific, wings of thunder, a vulture black sky. The rain had flooded the earthworm holes and the voldens and uprooted a crooked digger pine. But this morning, the rain had stopped. A slit of pink sunlight pierced the sky. Maybe we should wait another day, Valencia had warned, but Linda wouldn't listen. They returned to erecting the staircase, 100 steps up the bluffs, 70 feet, from Cold Sand Beach to the Little Onion Farm. It was Valencia with her black hair streaked with silver, her tongue clucking, jovencita. It was Bruder, who was 19 or 20. Orphan boy, Linda would tease him. And it was Linda. The three hammered step after step, cross beams and hand-hewn two-by-fours into the tarred wood foundation. They worked steadily in the dry morning, anxious to complete the stairs, watching the sky swell and sag. The worst is over, Linda predicted. The rain won't return. Her mother's screwed-up eye disagreed. Bruder said nothing. The nail stored between his teeth, a tea-head bolt behind each ear. Linda sang while they worked. Oh, she was born in the ocean and died in the sea. While Valencia and Bruder hauled the lumber with the log chain and hammered with the mallet. They worked as the ocean chewed the beach, foam spraying the steps. 
bulk help spit from the mouth of the waves, hermit crabs skittering like crumbs across the table of sand. Up on the farm, Dieter shod the hennies in the barn and sorted the white onions from sack to crate and napped on a hundred-pound bag of scratch feed. Then the sky reopened and the rain fell again, pecking anew the farm and the sea, and the dam broke, and Linda looked up and saw the downpour of mud, mudflow fairing uprooted ice plant and mica-flecked stones and pale yellow kangaroo rats and kitchen garbage and everything ever buried in the arroyo. Stewy mud, both liquid and solid at once, penetrated the dam and devoured her in less time than it took to say her name. Linda Stamp, she said it, and she was gone, the landslide pushing her down, yanking her under, pulling her in. Everything turned black, and the mass of moving earth trapped Linda. Valencia, reaching for Linda's hand, was ripped away, and Bruder too, each gone, each interred. When the river of mud halted at the beach, Linda was lying in earth as dense as the fresh pavement on El Camino Real. She struggled to raise herself, but the muddy tomb held her. All at once, her past and her future had become sealed together in a dreamless, bottomless cave. Everything is cold and quiet as the bottom of the ocean. Linda couldn't see, and she couldn't move, and she felt only fear. The mud settled like water stilling in a trough, and Linda heard the silence as if there was nothing left, no one there. In the landslide, Valencia and Bruder and Linda breathed mud and darkness, each aware of entering the grave alive. Yet one, only one, gasped and fought and shuddered and died. David, when you then prepare the rest of the book that follows the prologue, how do you go about choosing what you want the reader to know when? Well, that's um, a complicated question for this book in particular because um, the book is about storytelling and about how we and how my characters learn the stories of their lives over time and in, in a way that's not chronological. So, in fact, the book has two main narratives. The first is this of Linda that we've been talking about, growing up on the farm, moving to Pasadena, deciding whom she's going to marry, and, and, and establishing a life for herself. But there's a whole second narrative around the book, which takes place much later, in, the, in uh, late 1944 and 1945, at the, towards the end of World War II, and it's the story of two people. One is a woman named Cherry Nay. She's a real estate agent in Pasadena. And the, neck, the other is a guy named Blackwood, who is a small-time real estate developer in Pasadena. At this point, the ranch that we've been talking about, the, which is called the Rancho Pasadena, has fallen into decay. It's on the market. And Cherry Nay is showing the ranch to Blackwood. And uh, it's, em- it's an empty house. The orange groves have, have gone bad and need to be cut down. They walk around the ranch, and Cherry begins to tell the story of what happened here, who lived here, and whose lives ended here. That narrative 
is wrapped around the larger narrative of Linda and Bruder and Captain Poor. So the structure of the novel goes back and forth between the two talking about the, this piece of property in its decay, and that, which opens up the story of, um, of Linda at the turn of the last century. And w- because of that, what happens is there's a lot of information that comes over time that helps the reader and certainly eventually help, helps the characters understand what has happened to them. David, uh, tell us about yourself, uh, the man who creates all of these intricacies of the fictional lives of other people who uh, lived and died uh, years and years before you were born. Mm -hmm. During uh, the day, you work as an editor at Random House Mm -hmm. in New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, During the night, uh, or mm-hmm. other times, you write books like this uh, mm-hmm. on a farm in rural upstate New York. Um, what goes on in, in the transitions of these, maybe two, or perhaps there is the same life? Uh, <laughs> in, some, it's, in some ways, it's a double life, and I, I, that, that, that's a theme that, I, that interests me a lot when I'm writing fiction, is the doubleness of life, the double lives that we all lead. And um, I, I'm at Random House uh, editing books and um, publishing um, a number of books, I tend to edit mostly nonfiction, mostly history, um, is what I'm particularly interested in as an editor. Um, I do do some fiction, but I especially love to learn history via editing some of the, some great historians. And so I do, and I do work all sorts of history, world history. Um, and that's a, that's a, it's a wonderful part of my life as a writer because I'm exposed to so much that I may not, perhaps wouldn't be exposed to um, elsewhere because I end up working on books that I, in fact, perhaps wouldn't have come to in any other way. And I, as an editor, my job is to um, ask questions of the writer and to prod the writer and to push the writer and to shape a manuscript. And, and I do this... Um, both by learning about the topic at hand, but also asking the writer to help me learn about the topic at hand. And um, there's a lot to be learned as a writer from the process of editing, because writing is not just about writing a draft. It's about, for me, writing a dozen drafts um, or or more and revising um, relentlessly. And and as an editor, I go through so many manuscripts and can see what makes a book work, what type of storytelling pulls a reader in, and what type of storytelling can also lose the reader's attention. And so I try to um, to apply that when I'm writing myself and when I'm revising my own work. It also makes me respect greatly um, the editors who have edited me. How long was it after you started doing your writing before the people at uh, Random House knew that you were actually a writer as well as an editor? I've been at Random House seven years, and no one, no one, none of my colleagues knew I was writing. Um, and it was only when I had written most of my first book, The Danish Girl, uh, and got an agent and, and put it on the market to sell it. Um, and I didn't submit it to Random House at all anywhere in the company. What was that exposure uh, like? Um, 
I was very uh, I was very nervous about that. Um, I would these are these are my colleagues have worked on some of you know some of the great books of the last generation, and um, there's a I, I was nervous about sort of throwing standing up and saying. I'm a I'm a writer too, and and I and I hope my work can be taken seriously. And and I and I that's one reason why I just didn't have the guts to tell them I was a writer before I'd finished a book. And then they heard that I had this book, and then actually some of my colleagues got a copy and read it. And and um, there was a moment when Random House tried to buy it, um, but I thought I needed to start my career as a writer at another house, which is why I went with Viking Penguin another, you know, who, who's obviously a competitor of Random House, but also a very fine house. Um, and since then, um, they, I think there's, there's, uh, there's certainly wonderful support from my colleagues at Random House. Um, and there's also uh, people who have been very you know, good to me about understanding that I need to go out on book tour and do things like that. And um, but generally, I keep it separate when it's the day-to-day. Well, David Ebershoff, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And Thank you very much. And, and before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you would recommend? Yeah. Um, I think one of the books that I loved the most in the last year was um, a very highly acclaimed novel called Middlesex, which, of course, won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, this year, and it is by Jeffrey Eugenides, uh, and it is a big story about a lot of things. At its heart is a character named Cal, who um, it tells the story of his family immigrating from Greece in the early 20th century to Detroit, and the next generation, um, and then his generation. Um, and it's also the story about identity and figuring out who one is. And in the, for, in, narrate, in the narrator of Cal, we have a person with a very complex identity um, and who needs to figure out who he is. Um, and it is uh, an American epic, and it's deeply funny at times and deeply moving. And it's a big novel with with a lot of also very quiet moments that will break your heart. Well, David Ebershoff, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you very much for having me. From the 2002 archives of Radio Curious, this has been a visit with David Ebershoff, author of Pasadena. He continues to write as well as work as an executive editor at Random House Books in New York City. The book that David Evershoff recommends in this program was a novel by Jeffrey Eugenides entitled Middlesex. This program was recorded in July 2002. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. 
The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.